Our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke's Gospel, chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me, the door is shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. I tell you, ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is God's word. Happy New Year, church. It's good to be together on this first Sunday of 2021. It's good to say 2021. I'll say what we're all feeling. Thank God 2020 is over. We are looking forward to how God wants to move in our hearts, in our church, in this upcoming year. The New Year is always a good time to take stock on where we have been and to look ahead to where we're going, how we might want to grow this year. On a personal level, you might be considering your own spiritual growth. How did you do last year? How did you see God working in your heart? What, were you pursuing the means of grace? And then what does it look like to pursue those this year? Um, if you don't have a plan, you are planning to fail. Or maybe you need to make some adjustments in your finances or your health. Uh, I'm sure the gyms will be packed. Uh, are the gyms even open anymore? I don't even know. Packed meaning like 20 people there. Um, or maybe you want to grow in a relationship this year. That's good. Those are all good things. As a church, we want to uh, consider where we have been as well and where we're going. This is our mission statement. It's been a while since we've put this up, but this is who we are, why we do what we do, why we exist. We exist to bring glory to God by making fully devoted followers of Christ who passionately love God and people. And I've been reflecting on how we have been doing at this in light of the difficulties of 2020, uh, and there's still very much to be thankful for. We thank God that in 2020, we had eight people go public with their faith in baptism. That's really exciting in the midst of a pandemic. We had 30 people become members in 2020. 
for the most of the year, they couldn't even come to church in person. And they said, no, we want to commit to this body of believers. Uh, you, church, because of the difficulties this year, you were able to help over 80 benevolence needs that were given out to help people with food or rent or broken down cars or other things. That's over $60,000 just in benevolence. So I want, to, I want to say thank you, and on behalf of all of those who are recipients of your love, thank you. Thank you for your generosity. This was a really hard year. School and work did, don't look the same. Still don't. There are issues that are causing deep political and racial division in our country. So what are we to do? What, what are we to do? And our answer to you as your pastors is, it might seem surprising, the first thing we're going to do this year is we're going to pray. There are other things we can and should be doing, but nothing should be done before we get down on our knees and pray. That's our conviction. Prayer should be our spiritual knee-jerk instinct to the struggles and challenges of life. Is that true for you? If you read the book of Acts and you find the early church, they're facing persecution from the outside and division from the inside. And what do you find the early Christians consistently doing? Praying. At every turn, they're gathering together. They're praying all night because Peter's in prison. They're praying for someone who's sick. They're praying. They're praying because, because there's sin in their hearts. They're praying to, for God to move their church out. They're praying. You see, they got it. Why? Because they learned from Jesus, who, for his life, prayer was at the beginning, middle, and end of all that, he did, all that Jesus did. He literally started his ministry off in prayer, didn't he? And on the cross, what's the last thing he's doing? Shouldn't that teach us something? One of my convictions is that we ought to be a praying church. And that's why in 2021, just like in previous years, we are kicking the year off with a week of prayer. In your online bulletin, again, you could see the scheduled time of prayers this week, starting tonight, 5 p.m. right here, one every single day of the week. We have a, a prayer walk we're encouraging you to do next Saturday, and we have in this prayer guide, there's information of what that ought to look like. Again, you should have gotten a digital copy of this. If you need a physical copy, there's some out in the hallway. There's also a free book. We've given this out in years past. We're giving more out. It's called Prayer, How Praying Together Shapes the Church pick up a copy of this. This is free. There's also some, by the way, just as an aside, there's also some devotional books out uh, right here at our bookstall. If you're looking for a good devotional to help you get into God's Word, a yearly devotional, there's several back there that I've gone through, the other pastors have gone through that we highly recommend if you need help for that. We want to be a praying church. Now, I get it. Most of us, because of the lack of direct and immediate answers to prayers, it, it's hard to maintain motivation. Besides, in our Western culture, we prioritize productivity. We love being productive, and that's a good thing. But nothing seems less productive than a prayer meeting, right? There's no sermon to learn from, no notes you can take, no singing that binds us together, just feeble prayers from a few Christians who feel just as inadequate at prayer as you do. But please hear me, church. Prayer matters. 
Prayer makes a difference. It doesn't just change us like some people think. It also changes circumstances. Prayer matters. J.I. Packer said this, prayer is the spiritual measure of men and women in a way that nothing else is. So that how we pray is as important a question as we can ever face. We're launching into a new series for January called Koinonia, Growing in Fellowship with God and Each Other. Koinonia is the Greek word for, the word for fellowship, what we typically say fellowship. And we have this really watered-down version of what we think fellowship is. When you and I think of fellowship, we think, especially as Baptists, we think of potlucks, right? Potluck meals. That, that, if you look up in a Baptist dictionary and you look up the word fellowship, it's a picture of crockpots. So when, when we say we want to grow in fellowship and you're thinking in a pandemic, like potluck sounds like the worst thing ever. No, that's not what we're saying at all. Koinonia is actually a beautiful concept. It is a powerful uh, concept. It really means partnership. It signifies intimacy and commitment to a shared goal. And we want to explore what is that kind of intimacy and commitment as we relate to God vertically and relate to each other horizontally, and we want to grow in that. So today we start with becoming a praying people. Becoming a praying people. You heard the scripture from from Luke 11. Here's the first lesson we see. Pray with reverence and intimacy. Pray with reverence and intimacy. Notice it says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And then he gives them what we know as the Lord's Prayer. So what what prompts Jesus to give the Lord's Prayer? It's that a disciple asked him to teach him, to teach them how to pray. Notice, They didn't ask, teach us how to preach, Jesus, like you preach with great authority, or teach us how to perform miracles. No, teach us how to pray. Why would they ask that? They understood something. They understood that that was the heart of his ministry. In the Gospel of Luke, in particular, we see Jesus praying all the time. Almost about 12 instances of Jesus sometimes getting alone in prayer, sometimes praying all night, sometimes praying right in front of his disciples. He's always praying, and it was his passion for prayer and his intimacy in prayer that led his disciples to want that too. And so really, this this isn't, this is better, it should be better known as the disciples' prayer. If Jesus regularly took time to commune with his Father, how much more are we in need of this? And so in response to their request, Jesus gives us this model prayer. You'll notice in Luke's version, uh, it sounds familiar to Matthew's version, but different. It's shorter than Matthew's version. And I don't want to kind of get you, I want you to clarify what's going on here and then we'll move on. Why are they different? First of all, these are two different occasions. So in Matthew's Gospel, the great Sermon on the Mount, that's the occasion there. Here in Luke's Gospel, this is much later. So they're two different occasions. They're going to sound a little different. Secondly, 
Like any good teacher, Jesus repeats important truths for his disciples to learn. It shouldn't surprise us that Jesus is repeating this prayer because he knows, a good teacher knows, you've got to repeat important truths, important concepts. And so it shouldn't surprise us that he's saying this prayer yet again for the disciples who have already heard it on the Sermon on the Mount. And finally, the other benefit of having two slightly different versions of this prayer is that we learn that while reciting the Lord's Prayer is good and is a helpful thing for Christians, in fact, throughout church history, Christians have individually and corporately recited the Lord's Prayer. And that's a wonderful thing. But he's also teaching us that this prayer, as stated, is not the only way to pray. You see, Jesus is giving us a model for prayer, not a mantra for prayer. This is not the only way to pray, using these exact words. He's modeling what does prayer consist of. And what does this prayer consist of? First, the first part of this prayer is made of two petitions that focus on God, His kingdom, His name. And the second part of the prayer is is focused on three petitions, food and forgiveness and holiness. So the vertical first, then the horizontal. He starts by saying, Father, hallowed be your name. The Jewish people knew that there were many names of God, many ways that God had had revealed himself to them in the Hebrew Scriptures. And yet Jesus addresses God in a strikingly uh, simple way. He simply says, Father, And this is immensely important, church. Jesus wants us to approach God with the understanding that He is our Heavenly Father. This is a paradigm shift for many who would be listening, and maybe even many today. The word here for Father is the Hebrew word Abba. Same in Aramaic, Abba. In Arabic today, when I was growing up, you know what I called my dad? Baba. It's just, it's just the same exact term. It's a term of endearment. It's a term of intimacy, first of all, because it expresses love and affection. It's not just Father. It's not just Lord. It's not just one who's in charge of me. No, it's Dad. Intimacy, love, affection. But it's also a term of reverence. Because when we call him Father, Abba, you're recognizing God's role as having authority over you and having responsibility for you. That's what a father has for his children. Authority and responsibility. And so you come to him as Father, there's both reverence and intimacy. We need to understand this. I'm not going to move quickly past this because your view of God directly and dramatically impacts your prayer life. Jesus' use of Father shows us that the relationship we have with God is central to prayer. We do not come to a divine drill sergeant who has been keeping record of right and wrong and will nail us for it. Hey, drill sergeants are great. We got someone in our church right now. That's awesome. But listen, that's not God's heart. That's not God's posture toward us. We don't come to a Santa Claus who is keeping record of right and wrong to see if we've been nice or naughty. 
No, we come to a heavenly Father who has made Himself known to us, who has come down to us, who has adopted us. We come to a Father who deeply loves us and watches over us. We come to a Father who is almighty and yet all-merciful. One who dwells in heavenly splendor and yet one who dwells with the humble and the lowly. One who is great yet one who is good. Is that your view of God today? How you view God will impact your prayer life. Do you, appro- do you approach Him as Father? For some of you, the imagery of God as Father is not a positive one. You didn't have a good father. Or maybe you really even didn't even know your father. Listen, the remedy for a bad experience with a father is not the removal of any father figure at all. The remedy for a bad experience with a father is to experience a truly good father. And that is what Jesus is offering in this prayer. That is what Jesus came down to offer us in his life, death, and resurrection to make the father known to us, to give us the father and to give us back to the father. He says, Father, hallowed be your name. God's name is the essence of God. It's who God is. Remember when Moses said to God, show me your glory. And Moses says, and God says, I will, I will let my goodness pass by you and proclaim my name to you. And so uh, he passes by Moses and he proclaims his name because his name is, his, is who he is. It's his essence. The Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh. And then what does he say? Gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. His name is to be hallowed, is to be worshipped. His name, to, to hallow his name means you recognize that he is most worthy and most beautiful. It means to esteem and treasure God above all else. Listen, we start this way because prayer is more about being in right relationship with God than it is even about having our requests answered. I know, we, I know we're needy, and he doesn't, he doesn't mind our neediness. He truly doesn't. He loves when we come to him. But we come to him first acknowledging, God, you are greater than anything you could give to me. You are better than anything you could give to me. You alone are to be hallowed, to be praised, to be set apart, to be worshipped. Listen, God is not, he's not a piñata. Right? And prayer is not the stick. And we whack God until we get the candy out. That's not what we're talking about here. That's not Christianity. As much as those TV preachers try to make it out to be, that's a false version of Christianity. God is holy and beautiful and worthy of delighting in simply for being God. Do you pray this way? Do we pray this way when we come together? You say, I don't like coming to prayer meetings. I don't know what to pray for. You could stand up and literally just recount God's name. God, you alone are glorious. You alone are holy. And that's prayer. That's good praying. Next he says, your kingdom come. 
This is a prayer for God's wise and sovereign rule to take hold everywhere in the world, including your own heart. You're asking God to build his kingdom here, here on earth. And what this does, what this prayer does, when you pray and really mean your kingdom come, what this does is it cuts against everything in you which wants to pray, Lord, my kingdom come. This is a prayer of submission. It's letting go of all the false dreams that life is all about what I want. We ought to pray that our, start, start with your home. Start in concentric circles. How do I pray your, my king, your kingdom come? Start with concentric circles. Start first with your home. That your home would be an outpost of God's kingdom. That your home would be a place, no matter if you live with roommates or your children or your mother-in-law, whoever you're living with, or, or you just live on your own. Lord, pr- I pray that this place would be a place where God's truth and your grace are on display in the ordinary routines of life. Because that's what home is. It's just ordinary stuff. And it can feel monotonous and boring until you start praying, your kingdom come right here in this moment when I have to discipline a child and turn around and wash the dishes and turn around and fix a leaky faucet and turn around and still do stuff outside and turn around on and on. May your grace and truth in the ordinary parts of my life. Pray that our church, as you get... Wider out. Pray that our church would reflect God's kingdom in this community. Pray that we would put the gospel on display in how we treat those who are different from us. How we treat our coworkers and how we treat our neighbors. Pray that we would be bold with the gospel. Pray that God's kingdom would come here in our nation. That truth, not falsehood. That humility, not pride. That unity, not division, would prevail in our nation. Pray these things. Listen, if you can't pray for certain things, if you can't pray for certain people in our nation, it's because you're praying your kingdom come still. Pray that God's kingdom will ultimately come in our world. Pray for every soul to have their basic needs met. You realize that's a worthy prayer. We want everyone made in God's image, one, to have the, have the opportunity to have life, right? To be able to be born into this world and have the gift of life, and then pray that they would have the greatest gift, that God's salvation would come to every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Do you, you know that's why we pray for unreached people groups? When you hear words and you're like, what is that? I can't, even, I can't even pronounce that. I struggle too. But you know what? God knows those people. He came for those people. And he loves them just as much as he loves us. And the cross is for them just as much as it's for us. And Jesus said, pray for the harvest. Pray that God would send workers out. But this is also a petition for God's future kingdom to come. I think right inherent in this prayer, your kingdom come. This is an express longing for God to come and do what he has promised he will do, to renew our broken world, to right every wrong, to reign with truth and justice. Right? Pray, as Isaiah, say, as Isaiah tells us, pray that God would finally usher in a government that will be upon his shoulders, that will fully reflect 
the character of our King. Pray with reverence and intimacy when you approach God. But also pray with dependence and humility. Notice verse 3. Give us each day our daily bread. Bread was the staple food back then. Even now in the Middle East, bread is the cheapest commodity that you can buy. I think I've shared this before. In Egypt, you can buy a loaf of pita bread for for less than a penny. Because for those who are in the the, the poor class, that's all they can get. You gotta be able to provide bread. In fact, in Arabic, it's called, in Egypt, it's called Aish Beledi. That's what Peter bread, Aish Beledi. You know what that means? Bread of life. Bread stands for our daily needs. When he says, give each day our daily bread, he's saying, uh, he's not saying don't, he's saying, don't pray to be wealthy. If God makes you wealthy, great. But pray for enough to live. Pray to be healthy in mind and in body. This is an expression of dependence on God for everything, even the most basic necessities of life. It's also a prayer of humility because you admit you need God to provide for every part of your life. We live in such a productive society that we often forget that we rely on God for everything. And James 1 tells us, every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights. God is the source of everything good in our lives. The clothes you wear, the shelter that you have to live in, your home, your work, your recreation, your finances, your health, your friendships, your intellect, you name it. And beyond that, God doesn't owe any of those things to us. It's all given to us as a gift. Jesus is not saying, don't plan for the future or don't save No, what Jesus is saying in this prayer, give us today our daily bread, is he's getting to the heart of the matter. He's getting to the posture of our hearts. Do you recognize how dependent you are on God for everything? Hasn't this pandemic taught us, at least taught us that much, that every single breath, every single day is a gift from God? And that tomorrow is not guaranteed for any of us. Verse 4, and forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who is indebted to us. He moves into confession for us. Confession should be a regular part of our prayer life. Why? Because when you confess sin, it, it loses its power. When sin is brought into the light, it loses its deceptive power. When we confess sin to God and even to others, that's why James says confess your sins to one another. It's not because someone else can, can, can absolve us of that sin. It's because when we bring sin out of darkness into light, it, loses, it strips it of its deceptive power in our hearts. It, it loosens the grip in our hearts. And it takes a deep humility to admit that we still struggle with indwelling sin. In fact, the longer you're a Christian, the more you should be aware of the sin in your heart. And the irony of ironies is that the longer we are a Christian, the harder it does is often for us to recognize our sin. It's weird, isn't it? 
And when you first get saved, you're like, oh my goodness, look at the life I used to live. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pursue Jesus now. Not this, not that. I need to get, I need to get, I get, I get a reorder my life. And then you've been a Christian for a while and you're like, man, I'm, I'm doing pretty good, God. Thank God I'm not like that guy. And we forget, as John Calvin says, that our hearts are idol factories. They just churn idols out. You get rid of one and your heart just has this ability to be like, ooh, well, here's something else. Ooh, we're like kids in a candy store. Ooh, ooh. Forgive us our sins, he says. He teaches us to pray. Forgive us. This is good news, church, that we can even pray this. Jesus invites us to approach a holy God and ask him to wipe away our debt. You realize how shameless that is? You who have never sinned and we who have committed cosmic treason against you, God, would you wipe away our sin? This is the good news of the gospel. You see, Either your debt is paid by you as the debtor or the person you've sinned against, the creditor. Someone has to absorb that sinful record. And the good news of the gospel is Jesus has done it. We don't pay for our sin. Jesus does it on the cross. And in exchange for our sin, he gives us his righteousness. That's good news. You say, it's hard to confess my sin. You're confessing your sin to someone who's already offered a blank check of forgiveness. How? When you think about that, you think, why wouldn't I confess my sin to a God who has shown me that kind of love and grace? And as you marvel in humility and wonder at a God who would forgive you of this huge, massive debt, you know what happens? Your heart begins to melt for those who have hurt you in far lesser ways than you have hurt God. And that's why he says, as, as we forgive everyone who's forgiven, who is indebted to us, who has sinned against us. You see, to ask to be forgiven by God without, without forgiving others is the, is the ultimate hypocrisy. If there is unforgiveness in your heart this morning, as I know there are in many of your hearts, I'm praying that you would ask God to help you understand anew his radical forgiveness offered to you in the gospel. Go back to the gospel, dwell on it, consider it, meditate on it let, it, let it wash over you and humble you and heal you so that you can then turn and forgive others. Forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciliation. That, that's a two-way street. Forgiveness is you releasing the debt and leaving it up to God. We pray with dependence and humility and then thirdly, Jesus teaches us here to pray with persistence and faith. He says, he illustrates prayer by, by, through, through this parable. He says, a guy goes to his buddy's house in the middle of the night and bangs on his door. Why? Because he has unexpected guests that arrived in the middle of the night and in that culture where hospitality was held in the highest regard... He had to welcome them in. He has to provide food. It would have been culturally offensive not to do that. But he was out of food. Right? Christmas wiped out his pantry. He's done. He's got nothing. I mean, even the cookies were gone. And you know it's bad. No bread. And so he goes to his friend, 
knocks on the guy's door in the middle of the night, says, get up, man, and give me three loaves of bread so I can serve my hungry guests. And verse 7 tells us the friend says in four different ways, no. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. That's a polite way of saying no. The door is now shut. No. And my children are with me in bed. Really no. You think I'm going to wake my kids up? I'm not an idiot. I can't get up and give you anything. No. Right? They would have lived in a, a, a single room. Right? Everyone lives in the same general area. He literally would have stepped over his kids. He would have unlatched the door. Everyone would have heard it. He would have been rummaging for bread. No. No, no, man. Look what Jesus says in verse 8. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his ESV impudence or NIV persistence or KJV importune, whatever that means, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. The man honors the request not because of his friendship, but because of his persistence in asking. Here's my confession this week. As I was studying this, I kept reading the ESV impudence, and I didn't like it. I don't like that word. It seems too negative. I like persistence. But when I study the Greek word, I realize the ESV is right. Here's Here's what this Greek word means. It means, quote, lack of sensitivity to what is proper. Ignoring convention. Or... A single word definition, shamelessness. Listen, if you know me, you know that this can sometimes describe my personality. I hear that laughing out there. I am not beneath looking foolish in order to get a fair price or to get a deal or to make something right, right? If I've been wrong or someone I know has been wrong, I'm not, I'm not beneath that shamelessness to figure out how to make it right. Case in point, we had a debacle, two debacles this past couple weeks with something we bought, it was broken, and uh, an appliance that we purchased and has taken months and it's just a huge debacle. And so I've been on the phone, I know it's a waste of time, but I was on the phone for like five, six hours this week. I was on the phone because my daughter's camera wasn't working. I, I called the QVC. I don't know why we ordered QVC, but I called them. Two hours I'm on the phone. My wife's like, Are you, can you have my phone back? No. They said, we'll get right to you. <laughs> and I'm two hours in. I'm not giving in. They are going to get, I am not going to be the one to hang up. She took the phone hung up. Several hours for this appliance thing. And I, I, I get it. I'm shameless. I, I'm explaining to the guy why it didn't come right. What? He's like, that's horrible. He, he literally said, this has been a debacle for you. I was like, yeah. And then he looks at he's like, I have nothing I can do. I said, then I need to speak to a manager. I should have asked that in the beginning, but it's okay. I'm going through the steps. Yeah. The manager like, finally says, yeah, what can we do? I don't know. What, what can you do? He offered a credit. It's great. It was awesome. Impudence. Ignoring convention, shamelessness. Here's what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying that God is like this unhelpful friend. And the more you ask him, the more you wear him down. No, that's not what he's saying, okay? Get that out of your mind. I know that's what you're thinking. That's what we all think. You can't help but think that. 
We think that, well, that, that Jesus is making a comparison of like to like. It's the exact opposite. He's saying this is a parable of contrast. If an indifferent neighbor, if a neighbor who could care less responds with, to that kind of persistence, how much more a heavenly father will respond to our persistence. God does not need to be wrangled into granting our requests. And yet I, you can't help but to, to realize that the biblical teaching is that God grants some things only through persistence in prayer. Prayer doesn't produce compassion in God. It, it releases it. Why doesn't he just say yes when I ask him the first time? I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. I wish I did. The secret things belong to God. Deuteronomy 18.18. 18. What I do know, personally, is that there are lessons learned in the dark valleys that I could not have learned any other way. And so Jesus says in verses 9 and 10, So I tell you, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. And then he repeats himself. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. He's making the principle explicit. These three commands, ask, seek, knock, are in the present tense. They're meant to be emphatic. He's saying, don't just ask once, don't just seek once. He's saying, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking, don't let up, and don't give in, don't give up. And then Jesus illustrates it with an, uh, in another way. He's trying to drive home this point about prayer. And he says, listen, God is like our fa a father. Jesus knows that, that, that his hearers would understand this, this illustration. It's like a son asking something from his father. He know, Jesus knows that people like us are prone to moodiness. We're prone to selfishness. We're prone to being stressed out and frazzled all the time. We're prone to distraction. He also knows that the majority of parents want to give their children the best. How many of you who are parents, you, you've, you've saved and you try to squirrel a little bit of money away so you can, you can give them something nice at Christmas or for their birthday or so you can show them how much you love them and, and we do that for our kids. We sacrifice so much for our kids even when they're grown up. So Jesus says, if you have a son this is your son, your child. And he asks you for fish. Or he asks you for an egg. Which one of you is going to do a bait and switch and give him a snake or a scorpion? It's not like he said, if he, if he asks for bread and you give him like, um, uh, you know, asparagus. No. That's not what he, he uses something so absurd that people are like, that's ridiculous. A scorpion's dangerous. Why would I give my son something dangerous when he asks for something good? And Jesus says, exactly. No father would do that. That's the point. But you know what? Many of us live with this vision of God as some kind of miser who takes delight in watching us beg for, for help and ultimately he doesn't actually give us what we need. 
Or worse, we ask for something good and he gives us something bad in return. Why do we have this vision of God? Because we're not convinced of his inherent goodness and the love that he has for us as his children. Jesus Jesus' point here is that God will respond to our prayers. Why? Because he is infinitely greater than us as parents. He is the ultimate parent. He says, you, you who are evil know how to good, give good gifts. He's saying, Every, even the best parents screw things up. And yet sinful parents know how to give good gifts to children. How much more will your infinitely perfect, loving, and good parent in heaven Give good gifts to his children, especially his spirit. I can't not confront the, the big, like the elephant in the room. Most Christians already feel guilty about their prayer life. I know I do. And so I, we do a sermon on prayer, and it can inevitably lead to greater guilt because it reinforces that we're not praying enough. That's not my goal today. My goal is to give you a compelling vision of the character of our Heavenly Father. Let's face it, unanswered prayer can lead to great discouragement. Sometimes we ask for things and He does respond, and it's amazing. Right? And I could share stories from my small group where we've been crying out to God and He comes through in, in small ways and in big ways. And, and, and us guys get together and we literally marvel. How could God... How, how, how did God even do that? Oh yeah, he's God. He can do that. But oftentimes it seems like the things that we want most, a new job, a new relationship, or the healing of a relationship, a wayward child coming back, uh, physical healing for someone we love, time and time again, God doesn't seem to answer those prayers. And honestly, there's no answer that I can give you this morning that will alleviate that struggle. I could tell you things that are true. Things like God may be aligning your will to his will. And that's why he's calling you to stay persistent in prayer. Don't give up. Keep praying. I could tell you that he may answer it in a way different than you would expect. I could tell you that he may be purifying your motives as you realize your, your motives were, were kind of misaligned and you need to be aligned to God. I could, and, and those things are all true. I could tell you God may be saying, wait a little longer. Those are true, but they don't take away the pain and the struggle of unanswered prayer. Listen, the other thing is, if God answered every prayer, just just for a moment, consider, if God answered every single prayer we uttered, who would be in control? Wouldn't it make God like a genie in the bottle? Right? Who's, who's in control, Aladdin or the genie? I get it, those don't stop us from feeling discouraged. And so the truth is, I don't think there's anything I can say to help take away the disappointment of unanswered prayer. But if I could just say, if there is one truth 
If there's one truth that will sustain you to pray with faith, not just persistence or impotence, but how do you pray with faith or trust? How do you keep trust alive as you pray and help you not be crushed by disappointment? And that truth is this, God is good. God is good. That's Jesus' point here. You can say God is good. You can believe God is good, not because he's answered every prayer. But in fact, you can know God is good because of what he did when you and I weren't praying. That's how you see God's goodness. You see, God is good ultimately because of the cross. When you and I were at our worst, what was God doing? When we weren't praying to him, we weren't asking or seeking or knocking, what was God doing? He was actually coming to us. He was seeking us. He came to us. When you were at your worst, God literally gave his best. He didn't give a part of himself. He gave all of himself. And he came down and he came as a baby and he grew up and became a man and and he lives this perfect life and he knows he's got to go to the cross. He knows at the cross, the worst pain imaginable is not the physical torture he would experience, but the spiritual separation, the father turning his face away as Jesus literally becomes sin who knew no sin. And so in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's crying out to God, he's wrestling, and he's saying, Father, uh, if there's a way for you to let this cup pass by me, if I don't have to drink the cup of this poison that's literally going to destroy me. And God says, no. The cup will not pass by you, and Jesus knows it, and that's why he says, yet not my will, but your will be done. And then he goes to the cross and, he, and he's praying all throughout Luke. He's been praying to his father and he calls him father and there's this intimacy and warmness and love and yet on the cross for the first time and the only time Jesus ever prays a prayer without saying father, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, God was silent. As Jesus is crying out on the cross, God the Father is silent. Not because he didn't love the Son, but because the Son was called to do an unimaginable task. To bear the brunt of our condemnation. To bear the brunt of our punishment. To bear the brunt of what it means to be totally separated because sin must be punished. He was facing the justice you and I deserved. And he did it willingly. Jesus loved you enough to stay on the cross even when everything in him would want to come down and be done with it. He didn't. He stayed. Because God was silent when Jesus prayed. His promise to you and I now is that he will never be silent when we pray. Because Jesus died and rose again, he can now offer us the greatest answer to prayer. Freedom from sin. Freedom from condemnation. Freedom from death itself. A restored relationship to your heavenly Father. Jesus is so bold here to end by saying, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? In other words, he he won't just give you um, his word written. He'll give himself living inside of you, ministering his love to you. His promise to you is that all things will work together for good. 
His promise to you as you pray to him is that the hope that one day he will tear back the curtain for you and you'll you'll be able to see it all make sense finally. His promise to you in the midst of darkness and doctor's visits and financial burdens and all kinds of relational strain, his promise to you is, I will make all things new. You didn't know your earthly father? Oh, you're going to know your heavenly father one day so intimately, you won't even know what to do with yourself. You had a disease on earth? Oh, you're going to experience such freedom in your body and soul when you get to heaven that the very first moment you're with him will be worth a thousand moments here on earth. That's why we can pray with faith. Because God really is good. For some of you, today needs to be the day where you ask Jesus to be your Savior. Where you turn from sin, you turn from whatever you've been looking to, and you trust in Christ alone. Because God delights in answering that prayer. He answers it every time with a yes and amen. And for all of us, I'll just say what I, I'm going to repeat this probably the rest of my life because I don't, I don't know how else to say it, and I don't, I don't have many um, whole gra- hands, that, you know, things to grasp onto as I'm climbing this mountain of, of crazy life. And, but here's one of the things that I hold on to. You can trust God's heart even when you don't understand his will. Because if you're convinced God is good, even when life is bad, you'll keep asking, keep knocking, keep seeking, even when you don't get the answer you want. And you'll rest in the truth that God does care God does listen, and God is good. Let's grow in becoming a praying people. Father, thank you that you give us yourself fully and freely. Thank you that you sent Jesus, and even in his perfect state, he lived in dependence, in humility, in reverence, in intimacy. Thank you that we have a Savior who knows what it's like to experience the brokenness of this world. And thank you that right now you have given us your Spirit. You do not hold back your Holy Spirit. Is there any greater value, is there any greater gift you could give us, Lord, than your very Spirit, your presence, God, help us. I pray on behalf of our church. We believe, help our unbelief. I pray for those who are right now wrestling. Can they trust you? Can they keep trusting you? God, would you give them whatever grace they need today to to take the next step, to keep walking, or to just stand their ground? in the face of such pain and uncertainty. We ask for you to do this for the glory of your name, Lord, and for the beauty of your church as you form us in the image of your Son. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.